This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number 10 of the series devoted to the Son, the Son of God. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, we are going to read the first and the last chapters of the first epistle of John. The first epistle of John, the first and the last chapters. Our subject this evening will be largely a comparison and a consideration of the testimony of John's Gospel and the subsequent teaching of John's Epistle. The same writer, writing about the same person, about looking at it from two points of view. One of the outstanding teachers in John's Gospel is the emphasis upon life. He summed up in the closing chapters, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have, he might have life through his name. It's in John 3.16 that we get that wonderful text, hath everlasting life. The key thought of John's Gospel is that you may believe. The key thought of the first epistle is that you may know. You add to your faith knowledge. Now I think for a moment we'll forget about John. We'll think of the four Gospels. The four Gospels give you the earthly life of the Son of God and the concluding chapters lead us to the cross the resurrection. The epistles give you very little of the earthly life of the Son of God and they start where the gospel leads off. Now it's absolutely necessary that we should know something of that earthly life of Christ but as far as my memory serves me there's no epistle written afterwards that delves deeply into the parables or goes extensively into the miracles, or deals with some of the tenets and teachings that were given while Christ walked the earth. But they take, take it for granted that the true start for you and for me is not the birth at Bethlehem, nor that spotless life of 30 years in obscurity at Nazareth, nor the three years, perhaps three years and a half of testimony but it was the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, the climax of the Gospels and the foundation and beginning of the epistles. The epistles are written by Peter and James and John and Jude. They were all with our Saviour from the beginning. He chose them and they were with him right to the end. So that you see, it's a little bit of a warning to some of us if not to some of us, to some of God's dear people. They live practically in the Gospels. And you have to be very, very careful and very, very sensitive that you don't, they don't give them a false impression. We are not setting aside the Gospels. But if you never get outside the Gospels, you never get to the point when you're being instructed as to what all that Gospel 
life, death, sums up too. You practically got hardly any teaching as to why Christ should be crucified. But the moment you get to Paul's epistles, or to Peter's epistles, or even to John's epistle, you know he was offering, being offered as a sacrifice for sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin, said John in his first chapter. So, if you can sometimes very gently drop a hint, and say, you know, the literal translation of Hebrews 6, verse 1, is therefore leaving the word of the beginning of Christ. It doesn't say leave the first principles of the oracles of God. You say, God forbid, we are sad to think that anybody should ever leave the first principles of the oracles of God. That's what they're doing, alas. But he says, look, I fed you with milk and not with meat. But he says, if you're ever going to grow, you must not only know that earthly life and the parables of Matthew 13, but you must know all that that death and resurrection and ascension and present session at the right hand of God mean. And they only come in at the very end with practically no explanation. So the epistles mustn't be looked upon merely as something extra. They have a, a very, very decided place in the development and outworking of this teaching. You will notice in this first epistle of John, he says two or three times, I write unto you, and the reason why I have written unto you is this. Oh, he says it quite a number of times. Uh, you notice in chapter 1, he says... Um, Verse 4, and these things write we unto you, why? That your joy may be full. You may have a beginning of the joy as you see that earthly life and see those miracles and hear those parables. But he said, you want to know what I've written as well, so that your joy may be full. In chapter 2, he says in verse um, say, look at uh, verse Verse 12, I write unto you, little children, I write unto you, he's telling them, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. There's some reason why he's insisting upon this writing to them, as though he would tell them, it's one thing, of course, to read the gospel, but don't forget that I've been uh, uh, used by the same spirit to write unto you and take it a stage further. And so, we're going to consider the parallels that are between the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John and get to see just where any advance is made, any addition is given, so that we may profit by it and not leave it as a sort of unknown territory uh, which we haven't explored. You get, say, for instance, in John's Gospel, one statement that follows the words, God is. The only statement in John's Gospel that says God is, is when the Lord was speaking to the woman at the well. 
And they were discussing the question of whether you should worship God at Jerusalem or worship God at Samaria. And that may have been an attempt on the part of the woman not to get an answer, but she was getting a little bit perturbed at this man who could look her through and through and tell her all about her married life and all about all the other things. And one of the easiest things to start a distraction is to start some denominational teaching. And the Lord said, look, neither at Jerusalem nor at Samaria. God is spirit. That's all. And one of the strange things is, you would have imagined that our Saviour would have said to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, God is spirit. But to a poor woman, couldn't have been educated woman, he discussed this intimate thing, God is spirit, and about the worship of God. But to the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, he told him you must be born of the spirit. Uh, we take it the other way around, don't we? And so we've got lessons to learn all the way around. And when we come to the epistle, he says again, God is. But this time he doesn't say God is spirit. He goes on, he says, God is light. He says, God is love. So now, we've not lost anything. We've got, we've gained. There's a threefold description that is come to us through the ministry of John. I'm not saying that's the only thing that we can know about God. I'm only saying that that's what John has contributed. And if we never study the epistle, we don't get the insistence that there is the three aspects of the nature of God that he presents. God is spirit. That's fundamental. God is light. That makes demands upon us which we can never meet but they're met by our Saviour. God is love. The demand has been met and met by the gift of love, the gift of his Son. Three times. So we'll be thankful for that expansion. And then we can find other features. But I think the best plan now will be to let the parallels speak for themselves. I think most of you have the little outline, have you? Yes. Well, will you keep that in front of you while we look at the ways in which these, the Gospel and the Epistle supplement one another? Uh, it would be wise if you could keep your finger in the place in John's Gospel so that we don't spend a lot of time in getting backwards and forwards. And I'm starting with John's Gospel. It says, chapter 3, verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Stressing, as you know, right through John's Gospel, he that believeth on the Son. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, and life through his name, the consequence. But when we come to the first epistle, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, just the same, verse 12, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God 
hath not life, that's, that's true, but he goes on. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, what more do I want? That ye may know. You see, Peter writing to those to whom under his care, he said, add to your faith knowledge. It's not the other way around. You don't start with knowledge and then start believing. No, you simply trust. But sometimes what you call a simple trust is a very vague sort of thing. And once you're taught of God, and it's resting squarely upon what God has said, your faith will grow. And instead of saying you just only believe, you'll say, but I know. But how could you say you'd know? Well, it all depends upon the one I believe. You see, if somebody tells me something, some item of news, I couldn't always say to the next person, I mean, I know it's true, because I'm not quite sure about the one who told me. He's told me yards before. <laughs> but when once I know him, I say, if he's told me, although my knowledge doesn't embrace it, I can stand for it. It's passed from mere faith to knowledge. Otherwise, I've got to suspect his reliability. So don't be afraid of knowledge as long as you put it in its right place. So in this uh, chapter 5, he says, I've written unto you that believe that you may know that ye have eternal life. And then he goes on again that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, as though it'll go in a succession of pairs. Because he says, after you've believed and after you know, you'll go on to believe a bit more and know a bit more. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know, the Lord. In both of these, Gospel and Epistle, the title which is peculiar to John's writing is the Word. Let's refresh our memory. Chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Word. A very strange title to give to a person. It all depends upon that person and his office. And the person here is the one who is the express image of the invisible God. And just as a word should make audible or all visible to the reader or the hearer the invisible thought that's going on in the mind of the speaker or the writer, but that's not always the case, because we deceive ourselves and we attempt to deceive one another. But with God, there's one thing we are certain about, if we are certain of anything, that our beloved Saviour never once misrepresented him. He said, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath given him an exegesis. Now that's rather a, a big word, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if anyone would ever say that I'm giving you at this present moment an exegesis. But somebody did credit me once with having an exegetical talent. I'll leave that to work out with you. But exegesis means to lead out. To lead out. 
what is there. You can't leave out what isn't there. So if I make the word of God a little bit plainer this evening, I'm only doing in my small way what our Saviour did in the past. He has given him an outline. He has declared him the object, the word. When we come to the first epistle, we have in the first chapter just the same. But of course, we've got the difference immediately. That which was from the beginning. The gospel goes right back to beginning of time. To creation. All things were made by him. But John says, oh, we're moving up now. We're moving up to another beginning. The beginning of when he came into this world. The beginning <coughs> when he walked among men. The beginning when he could be looked upon <coughs> and handled. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands are handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested. That leads me to the next item on this chart. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He says that life which was with the Father has now been manifested. One of the things for us to remember that in the person of the beloved Son of God eternal life entered into this world. In him was life. And now that life has been manifested. And both of course lead us to the Saviour, the same one. So now you can see by these opening words chapter 1 of the of the gospel, chapter 1 of the epistle, is intentionally linking them together. In the beginning, from the beginning. Then we have, in him life, the life was manifested. It says in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. Now when he speaks about light, in chapter 1 of the epistle, he says in verse 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. There's a very mischievous doctrine that insists that we only know that there's light because we have darkness. We only know there is good because we're surrounded by evil. And it tries to get away with the idea that evil is just a part of God's plan for us. Uh, you would want to watch that a little bit. Because if we can only learn by the contrast, God himself would have to have darkness up there to make light look what it was. He says, no, not there. No darkness at all. When the heavenly Jerusalem is described, it doesn't say, well, of course, you would never appreciate the light of day if you didn't have a dark night. He says, you will there. There's no night there. So watch these things because they're given as hints with our understanding. But he goes on with regard to this light. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. 
We've got to be very watchful how we deal with one another. But it's not a wonderful thing that this epistle, this writer who stresses the love of God so much, calls people liars far more than any other writer in his gospel and his epistles. Liars. Of course, we are not John, so we won't emulate him too much there. But all oh, there's a mark, isn't there? There's a sharp division. A great division between darkness and light. A real division between truth and a lie. And so he says, now, if we say, but supposing we don't say, verse 7, but supposing we walk in the light. It's one thing to say, isn't it? It's another thing to do. And I think we've recently quoted that proverb, which we quote again. Someone once said, your actions are making such a noise, I can't hear the words you say. I wonder if anybody's ever said that of me, or of you. If we say that we have fellowship, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, one with another. Well, that comes a staggering thought. Can we think of walking in the light? He says, now, don't think I'm telling you that at this present moment you have reached a condition of sinlessness. You'll never be free from its presence and its influence until you wake up in that day in his likeness. So he says, he alternates if we say with if we do. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light. We have fellowship, one with another. Now, is the bit that the gospel couldn't add because the shedding of the blood of Christ doesn't come right to the very end, you see. Now he starts here in the first chapter. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So he assures us that we can walk in the light. Of course, provision has been made. And I'm not perfectly sure about this, but there, there is some statements made about the present tense of the verbs. They call it a continuous presence. And so, to get the meaning in English, we would say, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, goes on cleansing us. It's not just once, but it's as many times as necessary. What a provision. Don't think you can walk in the light in your own strength. You'll fail. But he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But he doesn't say you don't, you don't deceive anybody else, but that's obvious, isn't it? Anyone who boasts makes that boast. We've, we've heard, haven't we, of the old story of one of the perfectionists, as they're called, going into sea Spurgeon. Whether it's an apocryphal story, I don't know, doesn't matter. And he said to Spurgeon, he said, I haven't committed sin for, oh, I don't know how many years or months or weeks, it doesn't matter. And then Spurgeon picked up a glass of water on his desk and threw it in the face of the man and he spluttered, he said, 
<laughs> I thought so. It's the old man, he says, he woke up with a glass of water. See, the perfectionist had come to the conclusion that the old man was dead. But he said just a glass of water woke him up again. Now, however near we are to the Son of God in this life, it's nothing like what it will be in that day. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Do notice the two words, not only faithful, but just. He has a basis for our hopes. Something has been done to make it just on the part of God, as well as kind on the part of God, to save us sinners though we are, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Second chapter ought to finish, uh, the first verse is a finishing of this statement. My little children, these things I write unto you, that she said, not, I'm not advocating that you should be easy going with regard to sin, have a tender conscience. I'm not excusing it. But I'm still saying to you that if any man does sin, don't let it drive you to despair. If any man sin, we have an advocate with a father. And it might be interesting to know that that word advocate is the word usually associated with the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, he said, another comforter. He said, I'm going, but I will send another comforter. Well, another comforter would suggest that Christ was, wouldn't it? But you don't, you don't always think of Christ by the title of a comforter. Well, even the word comforter doesn't do justice to the word, because we have gradually reduced the word comfort, which means to strengthen, F-O-R-T, to soothing and patting off a child, a comforter. This word advocate is the word comforter. This is the same word that is given to the Holy Spirit, the comforter. It means one that you can call to your side, the paraclete. At any time of need, he's there. But do you notice, you have to call him. He's not making it so that you cannot exercise your own feelings about it and take the consequences. But if you feel your need, he's there, always at call. That's a gracious provision. So he says, if I go away, I will send another paraclete. So he's the paraclete, the one we can call upon at the Father's right hand and the Spirit has been left behind to make intercession for us here, as we're told in Romans the 8th chapter. Well then, I've already drawn attention to the line in chapter 118. It was to declare him. And in chapter 1, verse 5, he uses the word again in the epistle. This then is the message we have heard of him and declare unto you. You notice, first of all, it was to declare God. It was to declare him, the Father. And then in the epistle, it's to declare what God has done and his character and his provision for us. Well now, without turning to John's Gospel, chapter 316, 
I think we can venture to quote it near enough, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In chapter 4, 14 of the epistle, you can hear an echo of this wonderful text. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. What a lot is crammed in those words. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. So John is continuing his emphasis upon this aspect of salvation and the one to whom it was offered. We've already looked at the other line in passing written. John, in chapter 20, assures us that the amount of material that he had, chapter 20 and 21, was so much that if it were all written, he says, I don't think the world would contain the books that were necessary. That may be a figure of speech, but it's me to say it's hopeless. It's beyond any man's ability. So he made a selection. But these have been written. And why did you select these? To focus upon one subject only, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the consequence? You must have life through his name. Well, now we get again in chapter 2, verse 12. We've looked at it in passing. We'll give it another hearing. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And earlier in chapter 1, these things write we unto you, verse 4, that your joy may be full. So you see, a person who is ignorant of the testimony of the first epistle of John may be cheating himself. His joy may not be so full as it could be because of the insistence in this epistle on the glorious position occupied by the Son of God, all the way through John's Gospel and all the way through Epistle, our attention is directed to him, the Son. Now we're going to turn our attention away for a moment from the Son of God to his spiritual adversary. And of course ours, in a sense, too. John's Gospel, chapter 8, 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. For when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. As you turn to the first epistle, chapter 3, verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. It's the same man writing, isn't it? He says in the, the lips of Christ in John 8 that he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. And he's picking it up again and says the devil sinneth from the beginning. But now he adds something more. He not only says that, but he says for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. And that's one of the key words. In the first chapter, 
the life was manifested. And we have seen. And so he says here, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. And the word destroy, that is in this verse, could be translated to undo. To undo. Let's put it that way for a moment. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might undo the works of the devil. And you remember how he was made flesh and blood, that he might destroy or put out of working order the power of the devil who had the power of death. And so we have Christ undoing the dreadful things that have been brought into this world by the evil one. And then he goes on to say in chapter 3 of John's Gospel about the necessity of rebirth, as you remember, to Nicodemus. But that's picked up again in the epistle. It's very possible that just as I suggested, I'm only suggesting it, that it was the uh, woman at the world was getting a bit uneasy by this one who could penetrate all her secret life and so she brought in the thing that would cause a bit of an argument as to Jerusalem or Samaria being the right place for worship. So when Nicodemus came to Christ, he didn't say, I'm very much perturbed about myself and my need. He said, um, Rabbi, that was a confession. Nicodemus was a great man. He was the teacher, not merely a teacher, he was the teacher of Israel in the Sanhedrin. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher, come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered. And what he said doesn't need to be any answer at all, does it? Because, you see, it says in the, uh, in the um, preceding verse, last verse of chapter 2, he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man, there was a man, or oh, well, we miss these connections. You see, we end our reading for the day at the end of uh, chapter 2, verse 25, and by the time we get our reading for the next day to start, we clean forgot what we read before, and we don't realise that that's the point. He knew what was in man, didn't need anybody to tell him, there was a man who came and said, oh, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, and he says, Nicodemus, except a man be born again. You say, was that answering him? It was. That was the thing that was troubling Nicodemus, all about this new emphasis upon entering the kingdom and the need for life and forgiveness. And he was a great teacher. But he didn't say it, you see. Aren't you glad, although it's very, very searching, aren't you glad that you can't deceive him? You know, sometimes in your prayer, the best of you said nothing, friends. Just go on your knees, if you will, and look up unto with the face of him and call him Father in Christ. And leave it there. He knows. He knows. And he'll answer the unspoken prayer. Don't try to fob him off at all. Nicodemus didn't get away with it. He was staggered by what he heard. So we have in First Epistle of John this emphasis upon being born, chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. 
That's a staggerer, isn't it? Because in the first chapter it says, if you say you haven't sinned, you make God a liar. Now it says, if you're born of God, you won't commit sin. Well, if we're honest with it, with ourselves and with one another, we're all out of it, aren't we? You know, I, I think that we ought to look at that word whosoever again. And there's a possibility that it says, whatsoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. That which has been begotten of God that you have within you, that doesn't sin. You've still got the old man, you've still got this body of flesh, you've still got all the possibilities of frailty, but you've already started. You see, there's an inner man, renewed day by day, the outward man is perishing. But whatsoever is born of God, not whosoever, but whatsoever is born of God, that new nature that God has given, that doesn't sin. And it's a pledge and an earnest that one day that's the only nature that will be left and the other one will be God, shared forever. Well, now we must go on a bit more because I see the time is fast passing. In chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. The stress upon this begetting. It's the title used of Christ, it's the title used of the new nature, it's that which is the possession of those who believe and trust in him. In John's Gospel, chapter 9, we have the blind man. We have the blind man. And because he and his parents confessed Christ, they were turned out of the synagogue. Of course, that's been repeated many times. In one epistle, the first epistle, chapter 4, 15, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God is the other side. They cast him out. And in the next chapter in John's Gospel, he says about his sheep, he leads them out. And it's exactly the same word that is used of the shepherd leading his sheep out as is used of the Pharisees who cast the man out. Perhaps it's the kindest thing that some people have had done to them, to be turned out of an assembly. For they wake up afterwards and discover it wasn't the assembly turning them out, it was the shepherd leading them out. But a rather a painful experience at the moment. But now, here's the other side. If we confess, he says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that's what the blind man did, and he got turned out, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Well, he hasn't lost much there, has he? He no longer is allowed to dwell or go to the synagogue once a week, but he's got now a dwelling that man cannot touch, belongs to a new company, a new calling. John's Gospel says in the first chapter, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Chapter 4 of the epistle says, in verse um, 1 to 3, these words, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth, now you might have imagined from the emphasis in John's Gospel 
that he would have stressed the deity of Christ. Because he, he says it so plainly in John's Gospel. But you see what he says here. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh of God. For friends, if we haven't in Christ Emmanuel, God, manifest in the flesh, we haven't the Saviour that God has spoken about. We must have the man Christ Jesus, as well as in the beginning was the Word and the Creator. This is the mystery of God in this, certainly, but you've only got to tamper with a person of Christ at one end or the other to be in a dangerous position. And here we are now explaining away the Son of God, denying that he's come in the flesh. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard. And so it says, in um, coming again to another line, in the great prayer of John 17, he says, I have kept them, now keep them from and leave them. And here it says in 1 Epistle 5, verse 18, We know that whosoever or whatsoever is born of God, sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, or keepeth him. And that wicked one touches him not. So again we've got the thought that there is that protecting hand. He keepeth it. We've already touched upon the fact that in John's Gospel it's limited to God is spirit. But in the epistle it goes on to say God is light and God is love. A threefold statement concerning God. Then would you notice a very characteristic word of John's Gospel. The same was in the beginning with God. You can't avoid it. That's what he meant. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness. The same Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. It's a characteristic word. So you notice in chapter 5, 20. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. We are in him that is true, even in his son Jesus Christ, the same. Now that word, unfortunately, is here translated this. This is the insistence of John, the same. There's no possibility of avoiding there was a man sent from God whose name was John, the same, meant John the Baptist. And when it says this is the true God, we are in him that is true, even in his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God, the same. This same one is the true God and eternal life. And it says in the first chapter that that eternal life which was with the Father has been manifested unto us. And it doesn't mean so much that this is the true God as in contrast to idolatry. But this is the true God in contrast to all the types and the shadows that went before. In him was grace and truth. Truth is the true grace. Your father did eat manner in the wilderness of the dead. I am the true bread. Wasn't anything false about the other, but I'm the real. In other words, although God is spoken of all the way through as sending his son and giving his son, being revealed as a father, 
you only know him as you know him in Christ the Son. And the more we know the Son of God, the more we get in the answer to our heart's question, what is God like? There's only one answer God can give you. He is Christ-like. If you want to know more, well, you have to wait till glory comes. For there are no terms in human language that can explain God who is invisible and beyond the touch of time and sense. God has stooped and limited himself in this person. And so, the last words of John's Gospel in chapter 20, he was handled. Let's look at John's Gospel 20, 27, just to see this before we bring it to a close. 20, 27. And then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And here we have, in chapter 1, of the, of the epistle. And our hands have handled, as the word of life, that touched us. And he came and he touched us. He has come into intimate relationship with us. And the joy is to know that we're not expected to be able to define all our terms or to explain the inexplicable. But listen to what he said once to one inquirer. Show us the Father and it suffices us. Have I been so long time with you, Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. He said, well, how? Oh, you better wait, I think. Shall we not be satisfied with this glorious gift of God? One who could be called the Word, declaring him. One who could be called the image of the invisible God. One who could be called the character, the express image of his person. He knows our limitations. He knows how far he can go. The pity of it is, we don't go as far as we may with regard to these things. And I'm very conscious that when I undertook this series on the sun, I was going to have to admit that when we got through to the end, that by the time we've got through, you've come to the same conclusion. You're coming to the same conclusion that I have about this and other things that I have not seen, nor hear heard, neither had it yet entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. So we'll walk by faith a little longer, friends. And when we see him, it's going to perform a miracle on us. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is.